So I always think about wealth not in relationship to wealth because I didn't grow up with it. I think about it in relationship to poverty. Wealth is when the word mindfulness means something to you as opposed to just another bird's word because you've got time to sit down and reflect, right? That is true wealth. It's not about the dollar figure. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We have the honor today of having Mark Blythe with us, and I'm pretty excited for this interview. I came across uh, some of Mark's work on uh, YouTube and then went ahead and read his book, Angrynomics. And so I think we're going to be in for a really interesting conversation about some of the economic things that are going on in the world today. Mark, uh, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I love when people describe it as an honor to be with me. And sort of, I, whenever I hear that, I always think of the crown, right? And so you're, in the, you're, in the, you're in the presence of like crap royalty, you know. <laughs> Should we address you as your majesty on the show today? No, not, only in private. Only in private. <laughs> okay, very well. <laughs> um, so Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what you do? Sure. Uh, despite the fact that I obviously live in a recording studio, uh, that's for fun. Uh, I'm a professor at Brown University, and I have a very long title I won't bore you with. Here's basically what I do. Uh, I've always been interested in the economy and economics. The reason goes back, honestly, to about 1981. And there was a British television program, I think it was called Panorama. And it was at the time when economics was changing, just as it is now, 40 years ago. And Mrs. Thatcher had come to power, Ronald Reagan had come to power. And they did a kind of game show face-off between two economic models live on TV. I'd never seen anything like it. There's this crusty old geezer representing Keynesian economics, literally with the beard and the tweed jacket. And they introduce him and he introduces his, his uh, equations and his models, you know, not actually showing you, but talking about it. He's like, well, we have an, uh, an applied model and it has 6,000 equations and we try and model the household sector, whatever. Right? And the other corner was a guy from the London Business School who had this totally stripped down monetarist rational expectation model, basically six equations, and the answer is always tax cuts. And basically they ran the models. They basically inputted shocks to them and... They did a whole program on this and discussed what it meant. And I thought to myself, that's got to be bullshit. Like, I mean, really? That, 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 this is how we do stuff? So I went to college and I studied economics. And I really st I stayed interested in it. My PhD is actually in political science for various reasons. But the, uh, the main reason being I'm really interested in economics as a thing in the world rather than as a thing you explain things with, right? I don't have a problem with it. I'm not a critic of it in some level, right? Well, on some level I am. But mainly I'm interested in the effects it has in the world. And I'll give you an example of this. If an anthropologist says that something is unsustainable, nobody cares. If a political scientist talks about party politics, no one says, oh, well, the scientist has said so. So, you know, clearly that has authority. But if, if a Nobel Prize winning economist comes out and says that's inefficient, we all go, oh, OK, right. Well, I guess we shouldn't do that then. And that's when economics becomes a language of power. So whoever gets to hold that language, mold that language, play with that language becomes influential because of that language. So that's kind of what I've always studied. And that's what I'm interested in. I, I, I love it. And I, I want to kind of uh, stay with that first this first direction and say, you know, in your books and in a lot of the interviews I've, I've seen about with you, you talk about three versions of capitalism, each of which has bugs that bring it down. Could you just kind of mm -hmm. break those three out and, and talk about those three in a nutshell? Sure. So, I mean, it's, it's a big nutshell, but I won't, I won't go on too long. It's fine. Here's how this came about, right? Um, the way I do research changes over time, and I think this is true for most academics. Once you've been 20 years in the game, you know everybody who talks about X, Y, and Z, and you read their stuff, but it, it gets narrower and narrower. So if you want to learn something, you have to go to a new community. So I wanted to learn when I did this book called Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea, I wanted to know about these guys called bond market vigilantes. You probably heard of them. 
So I, I wanted to go find them. So so I had a few contacts and I discovered that to meet them, I need to go to their conferences and their conferences that it costs five grand to get in, right? That's not what I'm used to. So the only way you can get in, like to, to the club, if your name's not on the guest list, is to basically be the, the the entertainment. So I started talking at these conferences and that's actually where I met Eric Lonergan, my co-author, right? So I had another version of this. I wanted to know about tech because all the stuff about tech transforming in the world and self-driving cars and everything's gonna change, which seems to always be true, but never quite there. I wanted to know about tech stuff. So I started going to tech conferences and the gains in trade were, well, what can you tell us about the world? And I said, well, I can kind of tell you how the world shifts on a big macro level. And they're like, great, because we understand crap about economics. So go for it. So I developed a talk, which became, if you will, the middle bit of Angrynomics, which is exactly these three versions of capitalism. So with that as a preamble, let's go for it, right? Basically, from about 1870 to about 1914 in World War I, we had a system that was a bit like the globalized world that we had from 1980 to maybe 2008. And here's what I mean by that. Free flow of capital around the world. Capital is free to find its highest return, right? Investor dominance. Governments don't get in the way of markets. They do what you might call market conforming rather than the market reforming projects. Think about Thomas Friedman's famous golden straitjacket, right? Globalization is good for you, etc. The big difference in that period is we also allowed people to move, hence why Minnesota is filled with Swedes, all that sort of stuff, right? But basically, it was an, an open system. Now, the, the bug in the software, if you think about capitalism as hardware, markets and institutions and laws are the hardware, and economic ideas are the software, what happens when you run any system for a long time is it gets more complicated as the code gets corrupted and it begins to fray and eventually it crashes. And the problem with the gold standard, that was that first order, is that it led to a continual depression of wages. Now, why is this? Here's how I think about this. What happens if you have a world in which everybody's trying to export but nobody wants to import? Prices have got to fall. If the only way that you can stay in business if you've got falling prices is to cut labor, you will cut labor. If you cut labor, then what happens? You cut consumption, so you cut final demand. You get into a kind of depressionary spiral. And that was the weak point with the gold standard. It blew apart in World War One. we couldn't get it back together again. After 25 years of everything from Hitler to Stalin to atomics to God knows what, the Great Depression, we decided maybe we should put some buffers in the system. And that was, if you will, version 2.0. Call it Bretton Woods, call it the welfare state, right? What was the idea here? You have to prioritize full employment rather than profits. Because if you do and go back to that old open system and you get into another one of those deflationary spirals, people tend to get really angry and they tend to become fascists or communists. And if you believe in maintaining capitalism, that's a really lethal combo. So what did we do? We stopped finance doing whatever it wanted. We locked it in a box of New Deal regulations right until the 1970s. What did we do? We put labor and business in the same room through big unions and big uh, business organizations and made them negotiate contracts where the gains of productivity were shared. And we ran kind of hothouse national economies whereby labor was privileged in the sense that wages and final demand were what seemed to drive the economy. So the wage share of the economy grew over time, which meant that the profit share went down. Now there's the bug in the software, right? If you run a full employment economy for 30 years, labor markets are incredibly tight. If you're also fighting a giant war in Vietnam, and you've got half a million people tied down extra to the labor market, and you're spending money like nobody's business, you're gonna get an inflation problem. And that's what killed the system in the 1970s. And businesses quite reasonably said, well, this was a great bargain for us for a while, but ultimately now labor share of national income's huge, profits are falling, and now you've got inflation in the system. Inflation's kind of like a tax on profits. If I'm an investor and I expect 5% real over a five-year period, inflation goes to 10%, I might as well take the money around the back of the building and burn it. So business kind of broke the bargain, and that's why you got Reagan, and that's why you got Thatcher, and that's why we got version 3.0. So what's 3.0? It's a bit like 1.0, only with a lot less immigration. So you open up capital, you open up the ability to businesses to move internationally, and they do, and they take advantage of cheaper labor pools, etc. And what do we do? We get back to that world now. By 1997, after the East Asian financial crisis, the whole of East Asia is running an export surplus against the rest of the world. China joins the WTO, 600 million people join the global labor pool. 
Walmart prices keep falling, but where's the final demand on the other side if all those jobs have moved from the United States reciprocally to basically compensate for that? So you create, if you will, a new equilibrium, but it's one in which profits are going through the roof, but at the same time, the wage share of income has never been lower. In fact, if you want a sort of summary statistic on this, if you take the bottom 60% of the US income distribution and scale that against prices, you'd effectively got 1973 wages and 2021 prices. That's not a good combination. And that is the bug in the software, the rise of inequality, the rise of financial fragility, because how do you keep growing when your wages aren't growing? You borrow from banks. What do banks call loans? They call assets. And what happens when those assets go bad? You get a banking crisis and it's so big that you bail them out. And when you bail them out, you're essentially saying to people who have assets, you don't get to fail. But you people with wages, you can fail. And that's what we've been doing until COVID when we bailed everyone. And there's a big question about how long we can keep that one going. But that's a summary version if you want. 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Each of them has a solution that becomes a problem over time, leads to a crash and a reset of the system. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, I really, I mean, I found that demystified so much. Like it really, you know, put things into boxes that are are, are easy to understand. Um, the other thing I really enjoyed about um, Angrynomics is that you kind of talk about this disconnect between local democracies and global capital. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and also about the concentration of assets in um, the hands of the baby boomers, because I think those are sort of, in addition to the, the version 3.0 problems, those are kind of exacerbating issues or, or kind of a backdrop against which this happens. So maybe you could sort of just tell us about that a little bit. The second one with the baby boomers, we can basically table for just now, but bring me back to it. I just want to call it getting old sucks. And it doesn't just suck for the people who are getting old. It sucks for everybody else, right? Because of wealth accumulation over the life cycle, right? But, but let's go to the first one. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, there was a time, go back to that, if you will, halcyon days of the 50s or 60s, depend, you know, and if you were a woman or, or if you were a minority, these were hardly halcyon days. But if you were basically a skilled working class male who was head of household, right, you could send your kid to college on one salary and still have a car and a decent mortgage payment, right? That was incredible. It was an unprecedented sharing of wealth in that sense. Uh, and that's that whole hothouse economy of that period. And at that time, you had very stable politics. You usually had two parties, Republican, Democrat, Labour, Conservative. In Europe, you had multi-party systems, but really you had two big parties and a couple of coalition partners. The left-right distinction was pretty straightforward. If you valued profits and low inflation, you voted for the right. If you valued wages and a bit of inflation to make things work, you voted for the left. And it was tremendously stable. And that corresponded, if you will, to the national economy. Now, when you internationalize the economy, when the biggest firms in your economy are global firms, when the largest tax base that you have outside of your own population are the likes of Amazon, etc., but you don't own them, and that you've managed to write the laws such that I personally pay more tax than an entire division of Microsoft every single year, then there's a disconnect between what you're able to vote for locally, what you're able to control locally, and also what politicians can credibly promise locally. Because if so much is global and beyond their control, then that's when globalization, rather than being seen as a kind of beneficial constraint or a bonus for all of us, becomes seen as a deadweight loss against the few, of the many, if you will, against the few that are really benefiting from it. And that's what leads in part to that fracturing of the politics. So a very simple way to think about this is it's always been true that cities are growth nodes. But globally, it's never been true that all growth happens in cities. And that's pretty much where we are now. So let's take a summary statistic on this. A median house price in the United States prior to the last couple of weeks of pandemic madness has been about something on the order of $280,000, I think. It's pretty low when you do the national average, right? But if you're going to a city, particularly if you're a graduate, and you're going to Boston to get a job, your median house price is $700,000. If you're going to San Francisco, God help you. Right now, that ties into the second part of it is the life cycle of assets. So, if you're coming of age in the 1970s and you got a pile of debt or you've got a fixed rate mortgage, this is brilliant, right? So, imagine I've got a huge mortgage, it was originally 12%. 
and uh, it cra uh, and uh, the the mortgage is uh, sorry let's say the mortgage is six percent inflation goes to twelve percent essentially the bank's paying the mortgage back for me this continues for years until the 90, early 1980s when interest rates shoot up, but then they normalize quite quickly. By 83, 84, you're down into single digits. At that point in time, you've released finance from all of its shackles of the New Deal era, and you're able to borrow, and you're able to borrow against assets like that house. And at the same time, stock market investment becomes popular again. And you see the rise of 401ks and money market funds and then increasingly sophisticated products. And you've got a whole generation who are benefiting from these changes. Right? The people who are basically benefiting from inflation in the 70s when they're young are the ones that want to lock in the gains with low inflation by the 1980s. They're the ones that want to invest in a diversified set of assets in the 1990s to guarantee their retirements when they come up in the 2000s. So what you end up with across the world, but especially in the kind of the Anglo countries, is it's the following statement. It's absolutely true that not all, all old people are rich. In fact, if you look at old people as a whole, they're just as unequal as everyone else. It is, however, pretty much true with one or two exceptions that all rich people are old because that's where the assets are concentrated now what that leads to is something that the economist thomas piketty calls the new patrimonialism so think about it this way is it an accident that your average ivy league institution takes 30 percent of its intake from the top one percent of the income distribution and about five to seven percent from the bottom 20. Are those people basically seven times smarter or seven times more advantaged because of the wealth that their parents have? Which then gets them the, the shrinking pool of top jobs, which are now globally competitive, which gets them, if they can afford it, because their parents have got all the asset wealth so they can liquidate it, into San Francisco because they can help them pay the rent so they can do the internship at Google. And what you begin to see is how there's a kind of intergenerational transfer amongst concentrated wealth amongst this one group of older people who are perfectly willing to transit back to their kids, but not to pay taxes in general, right? And that's where you begin to get, an, an, I think, a very interesting mode of intergenerational conflict on wealth that we haven't seen before. So I, I know that you have something else to ask there, Terry, but I want to I interject something because I have this quote. So when Terry and I were say, setting out to do this podcast, Terry said something and I wrote it down and I put it, on a, I put it on a sticky note and it's on my computer. It is the only quote on my computer. So she said, acquired privilege is bad. You know, we need to reward competence so we need a hierarchy of competence, not a hierarchy of past, not a, not a hierarchy of past privilege. Does, it, does that resonate with what you just said? Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, let's think about the Olympics, right? So the people who get to the Olympics are truly exceptional, right? You, you, you take the crappest Olympian and put them against the three of us in a foot race, we're all dead, right? They're, they're amazing, right? But let's think about other things. I mean, is it really just the case? Is it really sort of circumstance that even forget the United States, go to Oxford, Cambridge, etc. The employers go to those schools to recruit the students, right? Everybody else in the world has to apply to the companies to get the jobs, right? So there are hierarchies of advantage. And as the world becomes tougher, as the world becomes more competitive, as China modernizes, grows richer in the fact that they have their own universities and their kids are coming over here and competing for places with our kids and our universities, etc. Parents want to weaponize their kids' chances. So they spend three times as much. If you go the further up the income distribution you go, they pay three times as much in terms of ensuring their kids' future as they do down below because they have that type of wealth. Now, on the one hand, you're not going to begrudge a parent's attempt to secure their child's future particularly in a more competitive world. But what it creates structurally is incredible unjust advantage vis-a-vis -vis everybody that doesn't have that wealth that has accumulated over that life cycle. So yeah, it's a real problem. And it's one thing to identify it, but it's another one, you know, to fix it in a responsible way that basically, uh, that, that solves the problem without creating new ones. That's always the issue. And, and you, you actually have some ideas on this. I mean, you have a lot of solutions to capitalism 3.0 and that are interesting. You want to just you know, pick your top two and kind of describe those and talk about them? Sure. The, the one that Eric and I are very fond of is uh, taking a nod from the ideas of um, national wealth funds. So you think Abu Dhabi, Norway, this sort of stuff. So how do they get the money? What they do is they pump oil out of the ground. And then they turn the oil into equities and investment, real estate, and whatever. And then they run a giant passive fund professionally. And eventually what happens over time, as in the case with Norway, is you can generate so much off the financial assets, you can leave the carbon assets behind. 
So that's great, but what about everybody who doesn't have oil? Well, there is oil for larger economies every time there's a financial crisis, which is a weird thing to think about. But it's true, and it's to do with what economists call, or you could call it, the government's cost of capital. And here's the idea behind it. Governments raise capital by issuing bonds. Usually they have to pay a positive interest rate. And then you get duration risk and all the rest of it. If I'm holding this for 30 years, am I really going to get my money back? Am I holding a short-term bill, etc.? And that's government debt markets. Now, whenever the economy goes, ah, and freaks out for whatever reason, regularly stock markets fall by about 50%. We saw this in 2008. We saw it at the beginning of COVID. And increasingly what happens is central banks come in and go, okay, it's fine. I got it. We're good. Don't worry. Nobody loses any money. It's totally fine, right? Which is about as anti-capitalist as I can imagine. But nonetheless, we'll go with it. So what we do when we put these floors in, we do these bailouts, we set up things called maiden lane trust, and then we put mortgages in it and pretend it doesn't exist and then sell it back to the private sector. Why don't we just be transparent? What happens when there's a financial crisis is the government's cost of capital moves inversely with the private sector. As equity prices drop, the cost of raising equity goes through the roof, right? But everybody wants a safe asset. What's the safe asset? The government bond market. So they end up with negative real rates. In fact, $17 trillion worldwide of government debt is now negatively yielding, which is just think about that for a second, right? That tells you people are already so secure, they want security over prosperity right, in one way. Now, in that moment of crisis, when people want to buy government bonds and they're negative yielding, they're paying you to issue the bond. Why not issue an extra 20% of GDP? We just did it with COVID, but we didn't get anything for it. This time, we buy all those equities that are half price, we put them in a giant passive fund, and we don't give them back to the private sector. What we do instead is we do fidelity for the people. And we're on a giant fund that is, uh, you don't do controlling interest, it's not nationalization, you hold perhaps 2% of any particular entity, you diversify, it's professionally managed, it's miles away from the politicians. Just by the magic of the equity premium over time, if you did 20% uh, of US GDP is about 4 trillion, you let that go out for about 12 years, you'd end up at 6%, you end up with about 6 trillion. So you've made up 2 trillion without doing anything. So you want to get rid of the fact that young people are delaying marriage and can't buy assets because they're so expensive, in part because of the generational thing, but also because of that hideous idea called student loans. You could wipe out all the student loans in America without raising a single cent in taxes if you had that fund and you just ran it for 10 years. So there's no reason why we can't do things like that because that would be wealth augmenting. As Eric puts it in the book, why should it be the case that only the rich get an endowment at 21? What would happen if you were able to do that for everyone? How transformative would that be? If you weren't taking it from someone, you were making it for society as a whole. So I want to, I want you know, there's, I, I think you get into the space of, and it's just, this is much talked about for the last few years specifically, you get into the space of MMT, where you're just borrowing, 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 right? Is that, is that? Well, remember, MMT is not borrowing, right? So first of all, I'm not printing. an MMT it's economist. Printing. It's, it is and it isn't, right? Let me let me be fair to them, right? I like to describe myself either as MMT adjacent or the Fox Mulder of MMT, right? <laughs> now, here's, here's what they say. There's a, that totally dates us, by the way, by that reference, but I'm going to go with it, right? Now, here's what MMT actually says. When you, when you are a country that can reasonably well provision itself, which is actually a very big caveat, most countries can't do that, which is why the current account, imports and exports, really matters. And I think that's the, one of the weak points in the theory, right? But if you're a big country like the United States, you have the global reserve asset. Whenever there's a crisis, the dollar goes up because everybody's buying dollars because they think that's where they'll be safe, right? You have an enormous financial cushion. And the fact is you've got unemployed resources. In that economy, not spending money to put those resources to use to create jobs and growth is literally an economic crime. So why not do that? Because at the same time, if you don't, all that you do is knock the economy off its growth track, which is very hard to get back, right? And then you destroy those resources, either through the atrophy of skills, through unemployment and the problems that that causes, through shutting down businesses that were actually viable, that had liquidity problems rather than solvency problems. Why not do this? Second one, they would say, we need to wake up to the fact that we have a climate emergency. You're never going to find a fully private sector solution to this. Government needs to be the loss leader and the loss absorber. You do that through the state's balance sheet. 
Now, if you're a small open economy, there are massive constraints on doing this, absolutely. But if you're China behind three layers of capital controls, if you're the United States with the global reserve asset, we've kind of proven the point empirically that you can issue much more debt than you think and people keep buying it. Now, interest rates could rise. This is absolutely true. There's a lot of historical work recently that points out that really they've been falling secularly for 700 years with the 70s and 80s being a weird period. So maybe basically having a huge amount of old people in a truly globalized economy with high levels of wealth concentration where the people who have the money don't need to spend it and the people who don't have the money would really like to spend it kind of creates a structurally low demand for, for, uh, for investment. And if that's the case, that's another argument for the state stepping in and picking up and doing this. So I'm sympathetic to those points. It's not just money printing. Always, it's very important. Whenever you're talking about money printing, what do you get for it? So what we did in COVID, I think, is a, the worst possible use of all the uses, which is we simply subsidize consumption. You could have got something for it. You could have got partial ownership in companies to access to their income stream going forward. You could have done more on the green transition. You could have done more structural investment. I mean, it's hard here with Congress, etc. but you could have done that. And if you didn't subsidize consumption, well, you know, people might have rioted. So that's always a good idea not to have people rioting. But here's the key point. If you're printing money, so long as you're buying something that's got a net positive return on it, you haven't lost any money. So right? I mean yeah, you, so the, I mean, the interesting thing is somebody has to control the the spending, and we are the people that made those decisions to you know basically you know support consumption is Congress, and even if you separate the wealth fund or the the sovereign wealth fund or the national wealth fund from Congress in terms of management, Congress still spends the money, and so that's oh yeah absolutely you, you have a you have a, a, a you, you can't separate it from politics as much as you'd like. Well, you could separate the fund, but you can't separate things like an emergency response, right? I mean, that's what you're doing. Now, you know, again, if, if the net asset position of the state hasn't changed when you spend a lot of money, you've got assets in exchange for it, then nothing's changed, right? If I basically, if my, if the value of my house goes up 50% and I take out a second, I, I remortgage the house, right? And I take out $200,000 and I use that to buy equities and those equities have a positive return, how have I gotten into debt, right? These are all sort of balance sheet games. And what is terrible about the way that politics plays this out is that debt is bad and investment only comes from savings, both of which are just bullshit ideas. Stupid, yeah. Any any company would tell you otherwise. Any company it borrows yeah. to invest has a balance sheet. Completely. Totally. Yep. Totally. Yep. And another one to think about with that one is the myth of the stock market. You know, the, the stock market is a representation of our economy. No, it's not. It's a, just a bunch of assets people use to bet because they're highly liquid and you can use them in lots of transactions for, for different purposes. Very few companies, particularly in the US, raise money from the stock market. Your IPO is a way of basically getting your angel investors to cash out and to pay the guy who funded Instagram $2 billion so he can go off and marry Miranda Kerr. That's how this works, right? He's not. Nobody's saying that's how Instagram got the money they needed. Because what money do you need if you're running an app? Right? It's not as if it's like General Motors and you've got to like build all these machines and stuff like that. right? What exactly is the, the capital expenditure of, let's say, BlackRock? Right? Asset management. I mean, essentially, it's a giant spreadsheet with leverage. Right. So, you know, we need to update how we think about these things. I wonder um, if you can maybe also say something about uh, inflation, because I think that, you know, there's a concern that, um, you know, even if we don't call it printing money, that like somehow injecting a bunch of resources into the economy results in inflation. And one of the yeah. things I found interesting in agronomics is when you also I think you talk about like the kind of velocity of an economy and that that mm -hmm. ends up being the limit of, you know, the amount of, of capital that governments can inject. Maybe you can just kind of flesh that out for us. Sure. I mean, the very simple way to think about it is that even with lots of international linkages, most economic activity in the United States stays in the United States and starts in the United States. So if you've got unemployed resources, whether it's labor, capital, land, you can put that to work. Your limit happens when you start to see sustained increases in the level of all prices, not one, not one price. So this is the first misconception. Um, prices, how can, how can the Fed say that inflation is low, my bills keep going up? Yeah, because the United States has a largely unregulated healthcare sector where they don't even publish prices, where they can just magic up numbers and stiff you with a bill. 
that's going to generate higher prices. Uh, we stopped building houses for normal people in 1980, and we turned housing into an asset class. That kind of explains why house prices are going up. None of these things are in inflation. Margaret Thatcher got this bang on. And inflation is when people continually expect the price of all things to rise. And because of that unanchoring of the expectation, that's what begins to happen, right? Now, how close are we to that? Nowhere near it. Here's a simple figure, right? Half the country, United States, earns and works for $20 an hour or less. So you'd have to chuck an awful lot of money into the economy to create wage inflation, which is the main way that you would get that going, when half the country's on 20 bucks an hour or less. Now, finally, things have been moving up. You've got employers finally like Amazon's paying 15 bucks, whoop-de-hoo, etc. But look at their profits. And just was it two weeks ago, I think it was Apple, Microsoft, and Google had $47 billion in profits. Now, that's been dispersed to shareholders and insiders, etc. The wealth has been generated. Wages are barely moving in comparison. So we've got a long way to go just by pumping money into the economy to create a problem. Second thing is, money doesn't cause it. This is another important point. Most of the money in your pocket has nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve creates reserves for banks. Those reserves allow banks to guard themselves against the fact that if everyone shows up on a Tuesday and says, give me my money, then you've got some money. That's what it, That's all it is. That's what they do. Pretty much all the money in the economy is created by banks through, lend, through lending. So if you want a mortgage, you want a loan for a motorcycle, you want a credit card, even payday lending, that is actually the creation of money. So if you look at the measure of reserves, technically M1, and then you look at M3, which is basically credit and loans, if the government's spending money, M1, increasing, leads to increases in M3 directly, right, credit, then yeah, you could say that spending money causes rise of prices. Guess what happens when you look at that association? Hardly ever works. Because banks lend when they expect to make profits, not because the government's given them more reserves. They just sit on the reserves at the central bank and draw an interest payment from them. And that's how the government controls overall interest rates. It's one of the ways. So banks actually create the money that we spend on expectations of profit. So unless you've got a go-go economy where everyone's going gangbusters and everybody's borrowing more money than ever before, you're not going to see an inflation because that's how the mechanism actually works. It's through credit money, not through central bank money. And again, politicians do us a terrible disservice by conflating the two. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, I Another to, myth yeah, abolished. Another, <laughs> boop, we just stuck a pin in it. <laughs> sure gone. <laughs> um, I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about what you think the role of the media is, because I think that, you know, it gets maybe I heard you mention it sort of tangentially in, in one of your videos, I think. But it occurs to me that um, that might not be only kind of an economic question, because I think as the media platforms that we have change and there is an economic base to that, but part of it's also technological and cultural. Um, do you think that some of this has to do with the increasing levels of intolerance and sort of the, the propensity of rumors to take off and that that has something to do with the fact that this like center that we once had when everyone was watching network news has eroded? It's not just eroded. I mean, it's been deliberately blown up. I mean, if you think about the, the Murdoch empire, that was a deliberate attempt to take that down and promote an alternative narrative, right? So across the world, whether it's the Australian newspapers, the British newspapers, Sky News, Fox, etc. And they were the, 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 long before the technological platforms, they were the path breakers in that one. So that's been eroding for a long time. And, and you know, and in a sense, good, you know, because why should we trust a government monopoly or a couple of firms that have privileged access that just give us the party line? That's what gave us the party line on Vietnam. That's what gave us the party line on a whole bunch of stuff that ended up being wrong. So, you know, alternative media, in a sense, is a good thing. What's the problem then? The problem is humans, as usual. Um, psychologists call us homophily. Basically, we like hanging out with people who are like us, who like the same things as us. And what digitization has enabled us to do is to create enormous networks of people like us that we'll never meet face to face. Then add to that anonymity, whereby you can say things to people you would never dare say to their face. 
and you can weaponize anger. Now, now drop deliberate political manipulation and misinformation into that, and you can create enormously angry people. So I figured out years ago, a simple way to deal with this is whenever I write something for a newspaper, don't read the comments. Just don't, right? Um, if you tweet, try and tweet out. Look at, look at, if you want to look at the comments, look at the stuff that you tweet out because you actually want to see what people think about it. But if you're just putting stuff out because you find it interesting and you find it provocative, don't go back. You're just, you're guaranteed you're going to find two people called Dave 101 Angry, who's just going, and losing his mind. And who has to deal with that? But because we're homophilous, when we see when we share Facebook feeds and we see all the stuff that we like, and even then there's a lot of dispute and argument within homophilous groups, um, Nonetheless, when you get something that comes from outside, it's so different, it really freaks you out, right? So the problem isn't really the platforms or the media, it's kind of like our evolutionary hardwiring for how we cooperate and work in groups, which goes all the way back half a million years of genetic evolution. And basically what's happened is the digital revolution has just come along and beat that old evolutionary brain over the head, and we just don't have a good way of dealing with it. Wow, so, so politics economics and now evolution are all problems that, that we face. Well, they're also how we live. I mean, this is the thing about it, right? You can't do without politics. You need to make choices. I mean, Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher come journalist, which is a very weird combo, but she managed to do both, um, said, you know, good politics is when you argue about ends, not about means. Right? And part of the problem that we got into the 1990s with the kind of the Clinton period and even the Bush period before the security turn with Iraq uh, or at least in domestic policy, was that we stopped arguing about ends. The ends were set, right? It was liberal capitalism, globalization, all good things go together, democracy, etc. And then we just stopped arguing about the ends of life, in a sense. And if you do that, what you end up doing is creating, because of homophilous communities, these kind of false consensus about the way things are. So a good example of this that really enrages me, there's a book called Nudge, you may have heard about it, it's part of the whole behavioral economics movement. And basically the idea here is, hey, we don't have to like talk to poor people anymore. We can trick them into not being fat. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to, right? I don't need to address you as my fellow citizen or take your opinion seriously, because I'm a professor and I know better. And I talk to people who run political parties and we all hang out and intermarry with each other and share the same Facebook feeds. And we all agree that sugar is bad and people shouldn't be fat because we're not, right? We don't do that stuff. So because of that, we're going to basically trick you into doing certain things when you sign online forms and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, how, do you honestly expect that type of behavior to be compatible with democracy with with trust of the people that you send off to war because you certainly don't send your own kids right i mean no wonder people get outraged wow so so uh, huh, wow uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the themes we try to unpack and one of the you know we we talk about financializing everything and one of the things we try to unpack is this concept of true wealth like what is it that really creates well-being? What is it that creates happiness? You know, how do we get there? So could you just give us an idea personally? What does that mean to you? What does true wealth mean to you? So I, and this, this is where you get out the violins, I guess. I, I grew up really poor, right? I, I literally went to school with holes in my shoes. And I was raised by my grandmother. She had a state retirement pension. My itinerant father con contributed very little. My mother died when I was very young. And we grew up at the bottom end of the working class in Dundee in Scotland, right? So I always think about wealth, not in relationship to wealth because I didn't grow up with it. I think about it in relationship to poverty. And there's a wonderful book by a journalist called Mary O'Hara about the, the toxic poverty narrative. Uh, this, I forget the, 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 the title, but it's, uh, the, the, the poverty myth, I think it is, something like this. Uh, not the poverty myth, toxic poverty narrative is the subtitle. Anyway, her point is the following. She went out and she interviewed lots of poor people, loads of them, and said, what is it about po being poor that sort of is the, is the thing that just grinds you down the most? And they all said the most amazing thing, and it really resonated with me growing up, uncertainty. Right, not knowing how you're going to pay for something, not knowing if you'll have a roof over your head in a month, right? Not knowing how you're going to get the kids uh, the, the the stuff they need for school, right? And that affects millions of Americans. Remember that statistic about twenty bucks an hour for half the country, right? So w when people live in conditions of profound uncertainty, they're ve they get risk averse, they get angry. 
right? Uh, they feel desperate. They self-medicate. Think opioids, alcoholism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we didn't grow up with opioids, but we grew up with tons and tons of alcoholism. And there's reasons for this, right? So that gnawing sense of uncertainty is is cancerous. That 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 that's what poverty really does. Now, what does that mean for wealth? Wealth is when that stops. Wealth is when you don't feel that. Wealth is when you can actually breathe. Wealth is when the word mindfulness means something to you, as opposed to just another bird's word, because you've got time to sit down and reflect, right? That is true wealth. It's not about the dollar figure. My friend and co-author Eric Lonergan has another book called Money, A Philosophical Analysis, and it's a beautiful little book I love to give my undergraduates because it's a fund manager talking about what money really is, and it just scares the bejesus out of them. So... He has this wonderful way of thinking about it. When you go to Econ 101, they tell you money is three things. Unit of account, unit of exchange, a store of value. To which he adds, it's a partial hedge against the uncertainty of the future. So in principle, the more money you have, the less uncertain you are. Hence why we want wealth. But here's the problem. Once you get to a certain point, what do you start to worry about? Your wealth. And you worry if your wealth's going to fall apart and it's all going to go away. So clearly you need more. And then you go on the treadmill and then you can never have enough. And my favorite example of this was the Indian hedge fund guy a couple of years ago who got done for insider trading. He's running his fund. His fund was fine. It was profitable. But he needed to get that extra 2%. And he got that basically by paying people for insider information. And he went down for a long time. He was worth $800 million. You know what his problem was? He wasn't a billionaire. He wasn't wealthy enough. So if that's your definition of wealth, you'll never feel wealthy. You'll never feel secure. To me, true wealth is basically knowing that I don't have to worry about ever putting food on the table. Knowing that the mortgage is going to get paid. Once you're there, you can have a pretty good uh, conception of wealth without it having to get ridiculous where everyone's measuring themselves against Jeff Bezos. Enough. You need enough. Yeah, that's it. And enough calibrated to a reasonable level. And when we lived in closer communities and society was more equal, right? Really fascinating um, um, poll done, done on this in 2003. I think it was Ipsos Mori. Can't remember the details exactly, but here it was reported in the Times, right? So they said to Americans, um, they phoned up three and a half thousand Americans back in 2003 and said, where would you place yourself in the income distribution? 19% said they were in the top 1%. And another 10% said they expected to be there in their lifetime. Now, on the one hand, if you take that to like European political economists, they just fall on the floor laughing, going, what are these people, morons, right? But then you have to explain, no, go to the rich parts of suburban America 20 years ago before society started to fray to the extent it's done. Everybody owns their house. The mortgage has been paid. The two cars in the garage are reasonably new. Your two kids went to college and it didn't cost a half a billion dollars to do so, right? You know, you were able, you had still had health insurance with your job that actually meant you weren't out of pocket that much. So if you open, you got that phone call and you looked out the window in this nice neighborhood you live in and you don't really have any conception of super rich people with yachts and spaceships. I mean, we now have spaceships for God's sake, right? So if that's your reference point, you could go, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm probably in the top 5%, but Bob over there, he's in the top one and for your neighborhood that's probably true and when those expectations are cal calibrated to the local that's what people ultimately care about and if you generalize that you end up with a very happy stable society but if you end up with a world whereby like what did we generate all that money through amazon for so that this guy could fly up into the sky in an oddly shaped spaceship for five minutes and come back down uh, really th that's it no wonder the chinese are laughing I love how that's the end point of, <laughs> of that discussion. No, seriously, look, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm a Chinese long-term strategist and I see that thing flying up in the air, I'm just like, they're done, they're over, that's it, game's up. This is what you do with your wealth? You screw millions of people, companies for margins, their workers, your own workers, you pay them absolutely nothing, so you can generate all this work so you can do that. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's going to end well. But uh, Mark, I think that 
for me, that's very fascinating to hear this uh, business of, you know, money and wealth as a hedge against uncertainty. I don't think we've had that opinion yet on the show. And I think that that's very, a very good point. Um, I wanted to kind of just shift the discussion a little bit to, um, you know, this sort of like big level structural or like class-based analysis because I think one of the the issues that Jonathan and I have with this is that you know on the one hand there's definitely there are definitely structural issues and I think that we've talked about that a lot up until now in this podcast but one of the other to me aspects of the neoliberal Kool-Aid which I think both Jonathan and I partake in (laughs) drink heavily but these days you're on these days you're on the soccer and light version (laughs) exactly it's uh, it's spiked with stevia um but that you know there's this uh, aspect of you know self-betterment and the fact that personal improvement really on an individual level can make a difference in people's lives and absolutely you know part of the problem with the like the macro issues and becoming so sort of caught up in that narrative is that it disempowers you individually and might prevent you from implementing some of the things that would make your individual life better. And so I wonder if you think that there's some way we can sort of combine those two narratives without falling victim to, you know, just saying, well, these issues are so big, I can't Mm -hmm. do anything but be crushed by them. So how do we sort of on an individual level integrate changing things in our lives? So the first one is to not ignore the structural stuff, but not to be overwhelmed by it. And I'm going to take as my teacher another Scotsman, Adam Smith. And here's the Adam Smith quote that nobody actually knows. What is the point of it all? Why go through the hustle and bustle of life? Why save? Why invest? The answer, of course, is to be well regarded, to have the affection of others, to be at a place in society where one is comfortable. More or less, that's a direct quote from Adam Smith at the back end of The Wealth of Nations. The point of all this isn't to have a spaceship and basically more toys and then say, I win on the day you die, right? The point is to actually be integrated into a community and to be well-known, liked, and respected. And that's what most people want. And that goes back to that whole notion of uncertainty and reducing uncertainty. A large part of what the structural forces do is to deprive people of a sense of control. Even with modern technologies, or perhaps especially so, think about uh, people who clean hotel rooms. Some firms actually now require them to wear ankle bracelets so they can monitor exactly how many minutes they're in each room. Now, you know, at that point, your autonomy, your ability to even sort of like take five minutes off and grab a drink of water is, is, is monitored. When that's the structures that you're building into people's lives, it rings hollow to say, improve yourself, right? Second one, I'll go back to that example of behavioral economics and tricking people into making choices. Some people got very excited a few years back when FedEx drivers, they changed the contract on FedEx drivers so that they had to opt out of the pension scheme rather than opting into the pension scheme. So, ta-da, aren't we great? Look, 20% are now more signed up for the pension. That's great. Yeah, but the problem is you only get paid 30 grand a year and their costs are 30 grand a year. So now you're actually taking money out of their pre-tax income that they actually need to support their families. The problem isn't they haven't elected for a pension. The problem is low pay, right? So you can't wish away the structural stuff. Now let's go to the other side of it. What's the, the micro on this? It's not just a question of being overwhelmed by it. It's demanding from politics that we build a society that allows people to achieve. It's demanding that what we have are workplaces where our humanity is acknowledged and we're not just an algorithmic input, right? It's about organizing in such a way that we're not just doing it for the sake of my cash gain is your cash loss, that so that we can become richer as a society as a whole. And part of that is recognizing that there are structural advantages. Let's go back to that example, the Ivy League. Are the kids at the top seven times smarter than the kids at the bottom? Or is it the fact that they just went to schools that were seven times shittier and seven times less connected? So to me, the individual story is incredibly important. I'm there, right? I came from a very poor background. I'm an Ivy League professor. It happens. It's not just me. Loads of people do this, right? Through the life cycle, people go up and down a lot. But if you look at it across the whole distribution, if you start at the top, you hardly ever fall very far. And if you start at the very bottom, it's become increasingly hard to get up to the top. So what we need to do is to recognize that fact and say, how do we create a society where we equalize those chances? 
And part of the way that we do that is through the stuff that we've tried to talk about in the book, whereby you can create wealth for society as a whole that individuals can use to empower themselves rather than taxing one part of society to just give it to another and hope for the best. Uh, <clears throat> in one of these interviews that uh, the something like the equality of outcomes is a signal that references the equality of opportunity. Yeah. Right. So, so the fact that we have such growing inequality suggests that our equality of opportunity isn't really as equal as we think. I think that's exactly right. And then also what we regard as the important things to equalize varies over time as well. So since the events of last summer, America in particular has become very, very sensitized to issues of race. And about time too. Everybody should go read Mersa Baharahan's uh, wonderful book, The Color of uh, The Color of Money, which is basically how the entire African American community was excluded from building wealth from 150, 170 years. Um, so yeah, absolutely focus on that. But we have this kind of whack-a-mole mentality in politics, whereby if we're focusing on that, we're not focusing on that, and we need to take a more holistic picture of how you're trying to do this for society as a whole. So I, I think we're I think we're pretty close to the to the end of our time. But there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and that's um, wealth is kind of having a bad moment, uh, and in an increasingly I'd say an increasingly bad moment. Those who have wealth are getting increasingly scared. Those that don't are getting increasingly angry. And I think this is the the core of the book, right? So is there a responsible way to pursue wealth in this environment? And what might that look like? Don't build spaceships. That's number number one, right? Just just don't do that. It's just totally stupid. Um, it is a giant sort of like, I have all the money, you don't. Pfft, look what I can do. And that's not helpful. Um, the more helpful stuff is this. The one thing that we all have in common is the crisis that we all face that we're still in denial about, which is basically the climate emergency. It is already happening faster than we thought. It is going to be rougher than we think. We're already at the point where the reinsurance industry is basically going time out, right? And most people don't pay attention to the reinsurance industry. But without reinsurance, you don't have insurance. Without insurance, you don't have contracts. Without contracts, you don't have investment. Things go south pretty quick, right? So we need to start paying attention to this. And this is a tremendous opportunity to build wealth, both on an individual level and on a, on a, a society-wide level. Because getting to the other side of the carbon transition is going to require an absolute ton of investment. A lot of it's going to be done by the balance sheet of the state, but a huge amount of it can be done and will be done by private companies, individuals, entrepreneurs, etc. That's how we do things. That's how we end up with good things. And I don't see how this is any different. I think what we need to do is to think of wealth as how are we going to, sure, make money, but how are we going to create assets that are robust to climate change? How are we going to live in that world once we've basically created those assets? And how do we make sure that the distribution of those assets is better than the one that we've got now? Where to use the, the title of a great book from a couple of years ago, it's not all held by the dream hoarders, right? It's not all held by the people that have had that lovely life cycle that picked everything up and are now the ones who are like, screw you, I'm going to drive my SUV until we die, right? We have to get past that. If you do that, then I think you create the conditions for uh, a type of wealth which is self-sustaining. And the second one, uh, the third one, finally, I return to is my own personal criteria of wealth is not worrying. Right? Just calibrate it to that, right? I mean, if you could just have a world in which people are not fearful and angry, and a large part of that is because they don't actually have to worry about whether they will have a house next week, that takes care of a lot of things. That's a great generation of wealth and one we can hit. Is that capitalism 4.0? I don't know if we're not, I, th I think we're nudging towards it in different ways. Um, there's no clear blueprint, but I saw a bumper sticker in New Jersey in 1980, 1992, which has always stuck with me, which I think basically pushes us in one direction. Nature bats last. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I think, a great summary right there. It certainly is. Uh, so, Mark, I want to say thank you uh, for being on the show. Uh, I think our listeners are going to love it. And uh, I, I hope at some point uh, we'll have you back again. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Happy to come chat anytime. Wonderful.